Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. First, let's take a look at what's hot this week from the world of science. Kat, what have you got for us? Well, it's well known that human tongues can taste five sensations, the sweet, salt, bitter, sour and the mysterious umami. And this is due to different molecular receptors in our taste buds. But now, research from scientists in the US has shown that bitter taste receptors actually play a role in our lungs as well as our tongues. And their finding could lead to new ways to treat asthma and other lung diseases that affect around 300 million people around the world, including me. I am an asthmatic. (laughs) You'd bitter believe it. So come on, what's the story here? Well, this work builds on a discovery that we covered on the show back in 2009, where researchers first discovered that the same receptors that detect bitter tastes on our tongues could also be found in our lungs, and they're lurking on special hairy cells that line our airways. And it's thought they're there to detect nasty stuff in the air we breathe and stimulate the lungs to get rid of them by sort of producing phlegm and and wafting this stuff out of our lungs. But now, Stephen Liggett and his team at the University of Maryland have published a paper in the journal Nature Medicine showing that the same bitter receptors can actually be found in airway muscle cells too. And what do we think they're doing on those cells? Well, the researchers thought that stimulating these bitter receptors with bitter chemicals might cause muscle cells to contract and that would narrow the airways and cause you to cough, so you'd cough out any nasty stuff you'd inhaled. But in fact, they found the opposite. Bitter chemicals actually cause a massive spike in calcium within these muscle cells and that makes them relax. It makes your airways become more open. And this isn't just a small effect. It was actually three times larger than the effect that they saw with chemicals called beta-adrenergic receptor agonists and these are molecules that are commonly used in asthma inhalers to relieve airway constriction. Indeed your average salbutamol puffer is a beta 2 agonist isn't it and that's what that exactly, does. Exactly so, the old blue inhaler. So what are the implications here then? Well the scientists think that stimulating these bitter receptors could be a really great way to treat asthma or other diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. Now there's thousands of naturally produced and man-made bitter chemicals out there in the world so at least one and probably more is going to be suitable as a drug so it'll be non-toxic and it'll be active and be able to be delivered in the right way and the lab research also suggests that combining bitter receptor activators with current asthma treatments such as these salbutamol these beta adrenergic receptor agonists they might pack even more of a punch because these drugs work in completely different ways on the cells in the lungs but it might mean that your asthma inhaler tastes a little bit nasty i was going to say it might not be something you want to inhale thank you very much cat We're talking of nasty things, depression now, and uh, there's a new piece of research published this week that shows that, in fact, it may be possible to treat some resistant or refractory cases of depression with gene therapy. This is a paper in Science Translational Medicine this week by Brian Alexander and his colleagues. He's based at Cornell in the States. And what he and his colleagues have been looking at is a gene called P11. And P11 is expressed in the nervous system and it has an important role because it makes nerve cells put onto their surfaces receptors which are like chemical docking stations for neurotransmitter chemicals. These are the substances that nerve cells squirt out so that one nerve cell can hear what the other is saying. So if you don't have enough of this P11 gene, cells can't communicate very effectively and messages don't get through. At least if you look in the brains of people who have had depression at post-mortem, you can find that certain bits of the nervous system in humans seem to have low levels of this gene. 
So what this group did is to look at a mouse in which this gene had been knocked out from the mouse, in other words, genetically deleted, and these mice show the rodent equivalent of depressive behaviour. So they don't engage in voluntary activity terribly well, they show very stereotypical behaviours, and they don't seek out rewarding behaviours. They don't go and do things which most animals would do, which is clearly rewarding to that animal, like going and having a sugary drink or something. What they then did was to make a modified virus from which the bad genes had been removed and replaced with a copy of this P11 gene, and they used that modified virus to introduce to certain bits of the mouse brain new copies of this gene, P11. And they found that when the uh, modified virus was injected into a region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is the brain's pleasure centre, it's where we are thought to experience sensations that we find nice, they found that that gene expressed in that part of the brain actually put the mice right. In other words, these mice showing these classic depression symptoms went back to behaving just the same as normal mice. And why this is important is that it shows that with the restitution of this gene in just one bit of the nervous system, which we know is also affected in humans who get depression, you can make the depressive symptoms, in mice at least, go away. So this may offer a way of treating or managing very hard-to-treat cases of depression in, in humans in future. Cat. But we hear, we hear a lot about gene therapy, but how difficult is it to actually deliver gene therapy into a human brain? It sounds like that might be quite challenging. Well, actually, it's been done for an, a number of years, and there's a clinical trial which is going on at the moment. Um, the idea behind using viruses is not a new one. Viruses are well adapted and very efficient at delivering genetic messages into cells, and now we understand quite a bit about how viruses work. It's possible to use them like a Trojan horse. You can put inside the virus the gene you want to carry into your target cell, and then use the virus to infect the cell you want the gene to go into, and in it goes. There's in fact a clinical trial going on at the moment for Parkinson's disease to deliver genes which are thought to help nerve cells that are vulnerable to the effects of Parkinson's disease to survive better. And so what researchers are now saying, and in fact in, the, in this very paper they're saying we could use that same system that's being used and trialled for Parkinson's disease and put these P11 genes in there and use them to treat cases of depression. Cool. Good stuff. Anyway, also this week, uh, a team of international astronomers have confirmed the sighting of the most distant object ever seen. Ben Valsler spoke to Bristol University's Professor Malcolm Bremer to find out more. We were trying to identify extremely distant galaxies, in this case a single galaxy, so that we can understand the very early stages of galaxy evolution. We're seeing this galaxy very early on in the history of the universe we think, therefore, that it will tell us a lot about the early stages of how galaxies form and then evolve from the very small building blocks such as this galaxy into the larger galaxies like the Milky Way that we see today. And also, we are seeing this object at a particular time in the universe where there is a transition in the state of the gas that fills the universe. And we hope to be able to use this galaxy as a probe of that. So if we come back to using the light from this galaxy as a probe to measure cosmology a bit later on, first of all, tell me a bit more about this galaxy. It's at what we think of as a very large redshift. Now, what does that actually mean? The redshift is a measure of how much the universe has expanded between the time that the photons were emitted by the galaxy, the radiation that was emitted by the galaxy, and by the time we receive it. So a redshift of about an eight and a half actually relates to the universe stretching by about nine and a half times in linear dimension. And what does that mean about how old the light actually is that's getting to us? That actually means that the light was emitted 
about 600 million years after the Big Bang, and we are receiving it now 13.1 billion years later, as well as the time it takes for the light to reach us. Also, the light that we're interested in, which was originally emitted in the ultraviolet, we receive in the infrared because the expansion of the universe stretches all of the wavelengths of radiation coming from the galaxy by that much by the time we actually receive the radiation. So this new galaxy, is there anything particularly special about it that enables us to be able to see it, even though it's that far away? Well, we hope not, because what we're trying to characterise is the typical galaxy at these distances. The area of sky that was searched in order to find this object was searched using the Hubble Space Telescope with a brand-new infrared camera by other astronomers, and they came up with a catalogue of objects that they believed to be at these great distances. Any one of them could be at the distance of this object or even slightly larger. So what we're actually hoping for is that this is a typical very, very distant object. It just happens to be because it takes an awful lot of effort that this is the first one that we've confirmed to be this far away. So you mentioned earlier that we can use it to probe cosmology, really. As this light was emitted when the universe was very young, what can we determine about the state of the universe just from this light? Well, we expect that this object is observed as the hydrogen that fills the universe changed in state. Previous to this time, the hydrogen was cool, neutral material, like the gas within the atmosphere of, of, of Earth. But then, at some point, something ionized that gas, and the effect of that is that the neutral hydrogen is opaque to much of the radiation that's emitted by these galaxies. But then, as it gets ionized, charged effectively, and heated, it becomes transparent, and you can see the light escaping from these galaxies. It's an important step in the evolution of the universe. Knowing when it started, when this process ended, and what was causing the heating, the ionisation of the gas, is actually an important set of questions for astronomers. If we understand that, we understand an awful lot more about the early universe than we currently do. So looking at the spectrum of light from this enormously distant galaxy, not only can we tell how far away it is, how much space has expanded, but by looking at the bits where this gas has absorbed some of that light in order to become ionised, we can also start to get an idea of the conditions that were around this galaxy. That's right. In that one thing that, that's peculiar about this galaxy is, although we've detected it and we've detected the signature of hydrogen within it, it doesn't seem to be luminous enough for itself to have converted the hydrogen that's around it on the larger scale by itself from neutral to ionised gas. We suspect, therefore, that what we're seeing is the signature of other galaxies that were either very bright before the time that we're actually seeing this galaxy or just lots of smaller galaxies which are too faint to detect which have actually done the excavation of the neutral hydrogen for that object. It on itself, I don't think, would be able to actually carry out that process. So that's evidence of other galaxies that are still too faint for us to see with current technology, but evidence that they must have been around in order to have that effect. What's the next step for us? How do we start to try and look for these galaxies? These observations clearly push right at the limit of what we're able to do with current technology with both space-based and ground-based telescopes. 
But there will be technological improvements that will happen quite soon within astronomy. For example, we will get new instruments on the ground-based telescopes that we're using at the moment. But also, over the next few years, there will be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope will fly. This is the James Webb Space Telescope. And then on the longer term, we hope to build extremely large telescopes from the ground with mirrors of size 30 to 40 metres, whereas the current typical size of a large telescope is an 8-metre mirror. And that will be much, much more sensitive to these kinds of objects. And hopefully we'll not just be able to do a detection of these objects, but we will get much better spectra of them and therefore be able to tell you much more about their physical state. That was Malcolm Bremer from Bristol University speaking to Ben Valsler about the most distant astronomical object ever recorded. It's not my missing fashion sense. It's an object whose light was emitted when the universe was very, very young, less than 600 million years old. And that paper was published in the journal Nature this week. Chris. Kat, thank you very much. Something you need, because you obviously have got a cold by the sound of it, is to make sure you eat your vegetables. And uh, you and our Paleolithic ancestors, it turns out, our Stone Age ancestors, had a penchant for not just meat, as people used to think, but a meat and two veg. Anna Revedin is a researcher from Italy. She's published a paper with colleagues in the journal PNAS this week. And this group of archaeologists went to three sites across Europe, including a site in Italy, the Czech Republic and Russia. And they recovered tools which go back about 30,000 years from these sites. And they included various grinding tools and even a mortar and pestle. And embedded on the surfaces of those stone tools that are 30,000 years old are starch grains from plants that these people were presumably grinding up and processing. And the interesting thing is that the plants they were choosing included species of typha and also sparganium. And these are very starch-rich rhizomic things, a bit like potatoes really, which have very thick roots that would have yielded enormous amounts of starch when ground up. So these people were clearly processing plant matter, grinding it up, and the interesting thing that the researchers point out in their paper is that to make this actually have any kind of nutritional value and taste edible, these people would have had to have cooked this stuff as well. So this winds back the clock a long way before our previous thoughts and understanding of when people actually started to favour not just meat, uh, they're too veg as well. Anyway, all those stories are on our website if you'd like to read up a bit more about them. The references are there too. You can find them at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>